Hello and welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast brought to you by the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 21, Songs and Fancies, Music in Early Modern Edinburgh. Well, hello. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back. And uh, it's good to have you again here at the Gladstones Land podcast. Uh, I'm Thomas. And I'm Kate. Uh, hello, Kate. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right, Thomas. Um, yeah, going going a little bit potty in uh, in my flat. Um, been doing a lot of historical sewing, but... Um, historical sewing? That, yeah, I thought I'd, you know, put my time to something that was useful and not too brain heavy. Um, so I have been making um, a great set of Edwardian underwear. I've been um, dressing up some hats for when Gladstone's Land reopens for people to try on some beautiful 1760s bergeres, which are sort of a flat design of um, hat that was very fashionable at the time. Um, other bits and bobs like that. It's been really fun. Do you think you, you talk about sewing Edwardian underpants? Do you think it's important uh, when people are recreating historic dress to also be wearing historic uh, underpants? Yes and no. It depends what you're going for. I have some. You touched a nerve here. I have some very strong opinions on this. Uh, so, some historic clothing is not going to work without the right underpinnings. So for instance, um, earlier Georgian clothing is a conical shape, women's clothing is a conical shape, and that is not going to work without the right sort of corset under it, or it's not gonna look historically correct without the right sort of underpinnings under it. Um, But if you're just wearing something for fun, or then it obviously doesn't matter at all. <laughs> um, but for instance, something like a 50s dress will look better with the right sort of um, bra under it because it just makes it, it's designed to be worn with that sort of shape. So it, it just depends. It depends what sort of level of historical accuracy you're going for. Um, with something like Edwardian clothing, it probably doesn't make a massive difference. But Victorian, it would because that, that corseting shape is much more pronounced. Mm. Well, there you go. A fascinating uh, insight, (laughs) both into uh, historical uh, undergarments and the uh, and the mind of my co-host, ladies and gents. Uh, (laughs) With more information than you were bargaining for right there. So uh, today we're not talking about historical underclothes. We're actually talking about music. Uh, Music is our is the theme of today's episode Um, and specifically um i was going to say it's a pop, well not popular music but the sort of everyday music that people would have sung and uh, and and performed and listened to and played for themselves uh, either in their own homes or in uh, uh in in open spaces in uh, in around the time of of gladstone's land um i mean last episode Kate, we we did a whole thing on public entertainment, didn't we? Uh, and a, we did. A lot of those would have included music. Absolutely, we talked about uh, the theatre. We talked about the pleasure gardens. Um, they would have all had music as part of the experience. Um, and again, when you look at the London pleasure gardens, which we have a much better record of, um, there are actually records of the concerts that were taking place, the sort of music that's being played there. So we we know that certainly, uh, and that was much more 
18th century focused and and today we're going to be looking a little bit more at the 17th century but it was still incredibly um, pervasive in people's lives it was on the street it was in the taverns it was in people's homes Um, so music really was a huge part of what people were experiencing in their daily lives. I suppose it's and one of and it's another one of these things that people can uh, make reference to today, isn't it? That um, we, t- even today, even though many people don't play an instrument of themselves, we're always listening to music, aren't we? And people love to go and see music or people will sing music and there are popular tunes. And it's always one of those things that really uh, allows you to position yourself in a particular cultural place or time isn't it you know um <clears throat> all you need to do to set a film or or a television episode or something like that in the 50s is to play to get the music right yeah, yeah. 30 seconds of um rock around the rock clock and, roll. and you're there yep um and so so i i think um i always think of music as as one of the one of those things that uh that a really important part of, of culture because it's something that everybody does. Everybody can have some sort of connection to. And I suppose it's exactly what we were talking about in the food episode, whereas we can't be exactly sure what Edinburgh smelt like in the 17th and 18th century. Um, we can we can recreate the foods and um, to some extent we can recreate some of the music as well. Mm. Um, so it's this wonderful insight into... Uh, what people are actually hearing at this period. That's absolutely right. And thank you, Kate. That's a really good uh, segue into the uh, uh, the main feature of our discussion about music, which is our interview slot for today, uh, which is an interview I recorded earlier in the week with uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, James Ritzmer, who also happens to be a musicologist and an expert in early 17th century music. So here we go. Let's have a listen to that. So we're back now and I'm here uh, with uh, James Ritzmer, our interview slot for today's episode. James is a musicologist uh, studying for a PhD in 17th century music printing. Uh, So his uh, field of of interest is is right around the the right time for for Gladstone's land. And he also studied uh, and lived for many years in Edinburgh. So uh, James, welcome. Hello. Hello, Thomas. Delighted to join you. Welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast. Uh, I'm really glad that you're here uh, and that we're going to have this this conversation about um, music in the 17th century. So let's get started with, uh, I suppose, what may be a really um, a straightforward question. How do we know what 17th century music would have sounded like? Well, we have we have a couple of ways of telling. There are basically three. Um, the first, we've got written accounts from the time, so people describe things in their diaries, um, and that's often quite quite vague um, and often written by non-musical authors. But you get sort of really interesting snapshots um, of of the way that people lived and the way that they made music in their homes and lives. Um, and we'll talk about some of them, I hope, over the next uh, few minutes. Um, another is uh, books and written sources. So there are um, manuscripts of secular music and a couple of sacred music. Lots of these are held in the National Library of Scotland down the road from Gladstone's Land on George IV Bridge. 
um, and uh, they're consulted by by scholars who come to uh, from far and wide from uh, different countries to study Scotland's rich musical heritage. Um, and the third are instruments. So there's a very small number of instruments surviving from the early 17th century. One great example is um, an instrument from the National Museum of Scotland, which tallies really well with the time period of Gladstone's lands reformation in 1617. Um, and that's, that's a set of virginals or a, a small harpsichord um, from the early 17th century. Um, and these belonged to Mary Stuart, Countess of Mar, who lived in Edinburgh and elsewhere, and she died in, in Edinburgh. Um, and they're a it's a really beautiful keyboard instrument, which you can go and see in the museum. It's got painted, it's, uh, painted interior casework and um, it's quite a richly appointed instrument. So that's, a, that's worth a good look when the museum reopens after the present malady. And I suppose using we can use these <clears throat> instruments, uh, surviving instruments and books and um, uh, sheet music that survives from the time to to recreate the music that they would have played. Is that right? Indeed, yeah. So the three of those things together inform the way that we understand um, music to have sounded in the period um, that Gladstone's land was, was functioning as a house. And so what kinds of music were popular in the 17th century? What sort of things did people like to listen to? And what would you, in particular, I suppose, what would you have heard in a private home such as Gladstone's Land? So likely a real mix. Um, and it's difficult to, to know exactly what you would have heard in any one house. And not obviously not all houses would have had music and it very much would have been a matter of personal taste for owners. But in, in houses in general in Scotland and in Edinburgh in particular, there would have been uh, a couple of main strands. So the first is psalms. People sang psalms all the time, metrical psalms. Uh, so as a, as a musical genre, we're talking about um, something in four parts or just one part um, and something strophic with lots of verses, which would be sung to the same tune, one verse after another. So in, a, in a musical sense, you can think of the Christmas carol, Shepherds Watch Their Flocks by Night. And that's the sort of metrical tune from the early 17th century or late 16th that you can associate with that sort of psalm singing. For instance, um, singing in a psalm like that in four parts, would you have had four members of a family, for instance, all singing a different part, but singing together the, the psalm? Indeed, yes. So we know that there were some musical families who split parts between them. There are recordings of um, public events where large crowds amassed and people knew the psalms uh, in a way which we find difficult to understand now, but they were familiar with large bodies of text and tunes which were very familiar to them. And they, they sang these um, uh, we imagine with very mixed quality. We were, we wouldn't necessarily have <laughs> experienced rapture every time a performance of the psalms was was given. The contemporary accounts show how psalms were used in different environments, um, particularly outside the church. So we we think of them as being a, a church oriented genre, but they were they were used in civic life uh, to commemorate important political occasions, such as the entrance of uh, monarchs into into the city. Uh, and crowds would gather and sing psalms. 
uh, and psalms would be sung as part of public occasions, uh, even protests. So one famous example is when the, the Duke of Lennox uh, was protested against by a crowd who sang um, a psalm about about the Hebrews, uh, about the the faithful people of Israel, and and the Duke of Lennox, who was a Catholic who'd come across from France, was very much being protested against by this crowd of people who were sort of making their point of Scotland being a a, a faithful Protestant nation. So that's that's one example mm. of how Psalms came to the centre of public life. Psalms were also used in the home, uh, and from accounts we can see that they were used sort of key moments in people's lives. Uh, so the, the two that we know about from accounts are death and sickness. So people would say um, that someone on their deathbed had sung a particular psalm or that someone might have been sick and written themselves that in their time of trouble and adversity, they sang X psalm. Uh, so we have examples of, of that, but these, these examples where people name individual psalms are probably extraordinary things where um, someone happens to be writing about sickness or death. And it's likely that psalms uh, were much more part of the, the fabric of domestic life and that they happened at uh, ordinary times uh, on an ongoing basis. So psalms are very much part of uh, domestic music making in the home. So... Other than singing psalms and sort of, uh, sacred songs, are there other? There are presumably examples of people having sung non-sacred music as well. Are there are there other examples of things of that nature? Yeah, in, indeed, definitely. So uh, there's a large repertoire of secular song in Scotland, uh, which has been preserved in a number of books, manuscripts, uh, and and the like, which would have formed a large part of domestic recreation. And these psalms might be in multiple parts or they might be uh, sort of harmonized with, with chords moving together rather than independent voices. But uh, they, they would have addressed a number of topics like nature, the seasons, uh, love and fictional characters, perhaps classical characters. One such, is, one such source for this is a, a printed book called uh, Songs and Fancies. And it's the first printed book of music in Scotland. It's from, it was actually printed in Aberdeen by a printer called John Forbes. Uh, and this, this gives you an, an idea of the sort of secular music which would have been sung in Scotland at the time. So uh, a, large, a large body of secular song, some of it, a, a good portion of it by Scottish authors and composers, but also songs uh, from England and uh, from elsewhere, so showing continental influences as well. So the, it's, a, it's a musical culture which, which crosses borders. So one particular thing that comes to mind uh, for me is English or Italian madrigals. It would, is that the sort of thing you mean when um, uh, songs from England and songs from elsewhere that people would have been singing? Very much so. So to take John Forbes's Songs and Fancies, that printed book again from 1662, you can take that as a snapshot of lots of the music which would have come before it. And one of the madrigals in that, appropriate for this time of year, is Thomas Morley's Now is the Month of Maying. Uh, and that, that was clearly part of the, the repertoire that was represented in that printed book. And that exists in other manuscript or handwritten sources associated with Scotland from before that period. So 
the madrigal uh, and other other such forms in in a sort of multi-part style would would have been would have been part of that repertoire indeed mm. so it sounds like a real mix um how how much of this music was distinctly scottish then do we know so scottish scottish music is um is is sort of represented in different ways so in terms of genre sort of types of composition there's relatively little which is specific to Scotland itself because it has a very um, uh, very porous musical culture with continental Europe and, and England. In terms of genre, um, it obviously has native folk song, um, uh, which is sometimes in literature referred to as the native air. But we're, we're talking about uh, a folk song which uh, which would have been from a long tradition, so centuries old, which in the 17th century, when Gladstone's land was uh, being rebuilt in its present form, uh, lots of that music was being notated consistently in, in manuscripts. And the 17th century is where folk song really starts to become, uh, standardised is the wrong word, but, but move into the body of uh, written, written music people to perform and it wasn't always uh it wasn't always protected in in its original form so lots of things were recorded in different ways you get scottish songs which are obviously vocal pieces of music which are then arranged for uh 17th century instruments like like the viol and the and the sitter and the lute and do we know about any scottish composers from the time <laughs> We do know about Scottish composers. So there are there are a couple of small names from around Lowland Scotland. One is someone called Duncan Burnett, who composed keyboard music. The interesting thing about uh, Scottish composers in this period is that uh, a couple of the famous ones actually end up in England. So if you think about the 17th century and music, it's a period where royal patronage is really key to what uh, uh, to the, the sort of leading musical tastes in every culture. So in, in Italy, that's true of um, aristocratic families in, in Mantua uh, and, and in Venice. Uh, but even later in the 17th century, you can think of Louis XIV of France as having a really enormous uh, royal impact. And James VI and I of England was much like that. But when in 1603 he was also crowned King of England, he took a lot of his musical establishment with him. And this included Scottish composers. Uh, one of the famous ones is uh, quite an illustrious character called Captain Tobias Hume, who was a, a soldier, uh, a sort of mercenary who variously served in the Swedish and Russian armies while also penning lute songs. Um, and some of his music was printed in England and also survives in in manuscripts and he followed the royal family very closely down to London uh, and even when he had some of his printed music uh, published he he dedicated one of those sets to the Queen uh, mm. Queen Anne and gave her a physical book which has his inscription in the front so so there were Scottish composers like Captain Tobias Hume who who moved to moved to England You've given us a really, really great uh, overview of the sorts of music people would have listened to in Gladstone's land, if you like, the domestic uh, leisure music of the gentry. And we talked about psalms at the beginning. That was really um, fascinating. 
Um, I suppose my last question is how would the music in Gladstone's land have compared to the sorts of music that other people were listening to elsewhere in Edinburgh? Okay, so outside Gladstone's land in the street, for example, uh, one of the one of the things which people would have heard a lot were, were ballads. Uh, ballad sellers uh, would would sell what we call broadside ballads, which are large printed sheets with with a song on, and this would have verses, uh, and they they were songs which related to uh, political affairs or uh, things which were happening at the time or sort of elements of elements of local culture, um, and ballad singers would 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 sing these songs sometimes as a way of selling the the printed sheets but they would also sing and uh, perhaps be be given money and they they're associated unlike the music inside gladstone's land which we've talked about they're they're associated with quite low social capital so they're they're the early ballad sellers are the early 17th century vagrant and uh, uh and problematic person in the street if you will um they so as, as i said they relate to all sorts of political affairs. One, one example is the Marquis of Montrose, who was one of the people executed at the end of the, uh, the, the first of the civil wars uh, in, in England and Scotland, uh, whose, whose big monument is in St Giles. Uh, and there the were contemporary ballads detailing his capture and execution and that sort of thing. So, so they would sort of comment on affairs of the time. And, and the sheets which people sold, the broadside ballads, lots of them still exist and you can see them and they're mm. a great insight into, um, into that sort of element of musical culture. Um, often they just have the text, the words. Sometimes they would say to be sung to this tune and there's an enormous repertoire of tunes which we don't necessarily know about um, or some that we do know about, uh, which, which people would sing, sing the words of the, the ballad to uh, knowing the tune already, and a very small number of them have printed music on them. And in a couple of cases, this printed music is entirely fictitious. So the printer to make it look like um, to make it look like the the ballad was a musical piece, they would just print some notes at the top of the page. But often this had nothing to do with the <laughs> tune that you were actually meant to sing it to, and was often just musical nonsense. Uh, <laughs> but but that was sort of all part of the visual element of the ballad. So ballads you'd hear in the street. Elsewhere and, in Edinburgh, there are, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, so that's a bit like um, uh, today, there might be sorts of um, popular tunes that people know and you might say well here's a sheet of paper you know sing this to the tune of old lang syne or the grand old duke of york or whatever and people would just know the tune indeed yeah so it's tapping into this memory of tunes uh and the notation often, often doesn't correspond to that hmm. elsewhere in edinburgh there are song schools these are a really important part of uh, musical culture in edinburgh they, they were schools for teaching children how to sing music, uh, and they have their origin before the Reformation, when children would have been taught to sing um, sacred music for the, for the Catholic Church. Uh, after the Reformation, uh, James VI tried to refound them in the late 16th century, and they're a really interesting element of musical culture in Edinburgh because they sort of come in and out of existence. Scotland in the early 17th century was plagued by periods of inflation, and often they would 
give money to establish some schools and then the money which they'd given turned out to be worth very little or there was insufficient means to keep them going. So lots of the, the song schools sort of sprung up and then and then immediately collapsed. But there are there are three main ones. There was one there was one in St. Giles. Um, there was another at the the West Kirk, which is now St. Cuthbert's Church on Lothian Road. Mm-hmm. And the third was the the Nether Bow or the um the the song school near near the nether port the the gate at the bottom of the royal mile near the cannon gate where the world's end pub is and there was a, a third song school there where music teachers taught mm. taught children how to sing music in in the post-reformation uh, style the only thing we haven't really talked about that is um is organ music or church organs um and one reason i want to mention this is that we uh, the the one uh, musical anecdote that we could come up with relating uh, directly to Gladstone's land is what is something to do with the uh, a previous a, a resident of of Gladstone's land who we've talked about on this podcast before William Struthers who was one of the ministers at uh, St Giles and apparently there's a story that when James the 6th came back from uh um came back from England the one time he came back to Scotland after becoming king of England he installed a new organ at Holyrood house uh, and this apparently caused great dismay throughout the land and um, I read somewhere that William Struthers preached a sermon where he condemned the installation of this new organ um you you said that you had uh, you were able to furnish us with some details about this uh, story Indeed, yeah. So the, the, the Chapel Royal in Holyrood Palace refers to both the Royal Chapel and the institution of clerics and musicians who are associated with it. And, uh, and at a number of times in the 17th century, uh, it was attempted to be refounded, obviously with, with James moving to England that sort of immediate royal patronage was lost. But there were several attempts made to re-establish the musical tradition in Holyrood. Uh, and the first was in 1617. And a large part of it was the erection of this organ that you mentioned. Um, so great to be able to relate that key musical transformation in the history of Edinburgh's musical life to Gladstone's land directly. That's a really nice link to be able to draw. In 1617, this the, the chapel was refurbished um, so the, they erected new stalls for, for all of the clergy and the uh, and the people who sang and prayed there. Um, they were large, ornate uh, wooden designs, which were fitted with images of, of angels, which were then painted gold. They were gilded. Um, and at the centre of the chapel was this organ, which was built by an organ builder called Robert Dallum, who is a, a sort of turn-of-the-century English organ builder who did at, at times do foreign commissions, one of which is a famous trip, an ill-fated trip he made to Turkey, where he made an organ so popular that he wasn't allowed to leave and he had to flee. But <laughs> Dallam came to Scotland and he made this organ in 1617. And it was fitted into a, a case which was designed by Inaku Jones, the classical architect, uh, who was so formative in the foundation of Baroque architecture in, in Britain. Um, and it was put in a case by Jones uh, and, as you say, met this frosty reception. Okay, 
So that was the first attempt to refound the chapel under James I. But in the 1630s, another attempt was made by Charles I, uh, who appointed a man called Edward Kelly as the, the director of the chapel. His role was formerly presenter, but he was in charge of establishing the music again. And this is this is this sort of good point in, in the history of the chapel royal, or at least it begins as a good point. Uh, Kelly goes and he manages to, to find an organist to play Dallam's organ. He manages to recruit a choir and teach them how to sing, supposedly. Uh, and there were 16 men and six boys in this choir, and he had wind instrumentalists who came in and played sackbuts, which are a, an early type of wind instrument, which you can see in St. Cecilia's Hall, if you ever visit the instrument of, uh, the museum instrument down on Cowgate. Um, so he managed to get this, this musical establishment going in the 1630s. And this was one of the final blasts of the trumpet of uh, Scotland's royal musical tradition. So Edward Kelly, who was so instrumental in the foundation of the chapel, might well have proved to be uh, its, its demise and the, the cause for its decline. Kelly used to write to William Lord and other people in England who had sent him to create this royal foundation of music and get it going again. And he would say that he never had enough money. And this is likely the case because because of what we know of inflation that the money which they'd given to establish it mightn't have materialized and it would have become worth less with each passing year but historians have looked at edward kelly and it seems likely that he might actually have been pinching some of it himself and as as prices went up he seems to have milked the situation for all it was worth and there's there's the suggestion that he was embezzling it so sadly this this final blast of the trumpet of royal royal church music in scotland might have come to an end from the person who so so enthusiastically tried to form it um well james this has been a really uh, fascinating discussion and very enlightening for me about the different kinds of music both in a, a domestic setting a private uh, private setting and also some of the kinds of public uh, music that you uh, you would have heard in uh, in six, uh, 17th century edinburgh so thank you very much it's been uh, thank very you very much for having me it's been great to talk about it So just as a little postscript here, James, can you give us an example of a, uh, a particular song or, or, or some example of, of uh, 17th century Scottish music that would give our listeners a, a, a representative idea of what it would have sounded like? So in terms of secular music in Gladstone's land, a really good example of what someone might have been listening to or singing and playing at this time of year is um, is a piece called O Lusty May, which appears in that printed collection, uh, Songs and Fancies, printed by John Forbes in 1662. And this would have been known in the early 17th century and uh, was part of that May tradition of writing music for, for the sort of spring months, which was uh, which I referred to earlier in relation to Thomas Morley's Madrigal. So here we go, uh, Old Stime from Cantor's Songs and Fancies. Old Stime with Flora Queen, the balmy drops from Phoebus' shade, prelows and beams before the day, before the day, the day. Be that Diana groweth green through gladness of this lost 
greatness of this lost Well, that was absolutely fascinating and a number of really interesting themes to come out of that. I think the thing that probably struck me most was the volume of text that people were remembering um, and and those ideas around just how much, uh, in in terms of the Psalms, um, how how much people were learning by rote, really. Uh, I think that's right. And that, as as James said, that's something that we find it very difficult to... Uh, understand today that how how people would be able to remember all 150 of the psalms you know pages and pages of pages of of quite uh, dense text but but and that's because i suppose today we have such a uh, a written culture we have access to you know you can look up the lyrics of any song or any play um at the click of a, a few keypads and in those days, they didn't have that, it's, so they had to remember it. And and I suppose that spreads much further. It's the oral tradition of storytelling. It's because much fewer people are literate. So there is that huge culture and you get it even in um, education of this period. So children that are getting an education are predominantly rote learning. Uh, so it's hugely prevalent in the culture. Um, mm. So I, I suppose you could spread that out wider than music as well. I suppose the only... The only thing I could really think of that would give any sort of modern day comparison to the amount of text, the amount of words and things that people would be able to remember was things like pop songs uh, and um, uh, and some musical theatre and things like that. The, the way that somebody might know all the words to Les Mis, for instance... Absolutely. Or Hamilton is definitely one that people know every single word to. Uh, And I, yeah, I guess that's the modern day equivalent. Uh, But even our parents' generation learnt by rote in school, Mm -hmm. um, and certainly our grandparents, that that was still part of schooling in a way that it isn't now. So I I guess as that's dying Mm -hmm. out as part of the education system, people are still remembering things in other ways and I think you're absolutely right something like musical theatre um I I certainly know huge amounts of lyrics from bad 90s pop songs that were around when I was growing up um the other thing that I find really interesting about James's um uh, interview and that's something we talked about at the beginning wasn't it that the fact that we we don't just have a sense of what the music might have been like um we actually have physical printed copies of the music that people were using and because there has been a continuous tradition from then to now of performing and reading music we know what it sounded like we can take that book uh the the book that james mentioned songs and fancies and play or sing the music as people would have done then which i find just uh astonishing it really brings it to life um yeah as you heard listeners that's exactly what james did uh so um you heard just uh, uh, the beginning of the first verse of the song and what i'll do is i'll play the full song at the end so you can listen to it then just uh, just amazing but uh, 
for any Edinburgh-based listeners we have, I don't know if you've been, Thomas, St Cecilia's, mm-hmm. um, there's a fantastic little museum down there which um, has all sorts of historical musical instruments in. I absolutely recommend it when this is all mm-hmm. over. Um, but they also, I think it's harpsichord, I'd have to check, but they actually have an instrument, a historic instrument that you can play. Uh, so again, oh, wow. it gives you yeah, a yeah. real sense of, of sound and what noises those instruments mm-hmm. are producing. I think James mentioned uh, the St. Cecilia's um, uh, Museum of Instruments. Yes. Uh, and he also mentioned uh, that in the National Museum of Scotland, there is uh, a, an example of a, uh, a 17th century virginal or a piano, which Ooh, you can go I've and view. I've missed that, um, yeah. So all of those things, when this is all over, you can go and explore uh, <laughs> some of what you've heard about in, uh, in the Gladstone's Land podcast. So there you go. And so now we move on to our next segment, which is the Women of Scotland uh, segment. And Kate's going to do this uh, segment again for us this episode. So, Kate, who are we talking about this week? Um, I've got a little bit rogue this week. We are going to talk about Dora Noyce. Um, and I. Dora Noyce. Dora Noyce. What a name. Not her real name, but we'll come to that. Um, she was probably Scotland's most famous, infamous man. Uh, She ran a brothel in Edinburgh um, (laughs) throughout a good chunk of the 20th century, Um, but she is an absolutely fascinating character, Um, and I have quite a lot of respect for her, if I'm honest. Um, She ran a very tight ship. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about Dora Noyce. Um, so she was born in 1900 uh, in Rose Street in Edinburgh, um, and her actual name at birth was um, Georgie Hunter Ray. Now, we don't know a huge amount about her early life. It is possible that she was in sex work, um, but we don't know. Um, the first we really sort of have a record of her is she has an illegitimate tr- child in 1923. Um But this is where Noyce comes from. She takes the father's name, which suggests that this isn't some sort of passing client relationship, that this is actually something a bit more than that. Uh, And and Dora comes in at the same time and she develops this pseudonym. She gets her first conviction for living off immoral earnings in 1934. Uh, What does does that mean, living off immoral earnings? That is essentially what they did madams under. Um, So... um, I believe they could also do prostitutes under it, um, but it's essentially uh, the way that the law can regulate sex work at this period. And can we just be very clear, a madam is... Somebody who runs uh, a brothel which has prostitutes in it. Yeah. Uh, So, and we certainly know by that point that she's adopted a high-end Morningside accent. So she is moving up. Um, so what what she's been doing for that time, we're not quite sure. But we certainly know by the end of the Second World War, she is running a brothel. Uh, and it is in Danube Street, 17 Danube Street in Stockbridge. So it's a, it's a nice area. Uh, and that she runs that until 1977. Gosh, she has, da- uh, Danube Street is one of the smartest addresses in town, actually, isn't it? Yep. Um, it does get smarter during that period. Um, but certainly by the 70s it is very smart Uh, so you can imagine how that went down with a brothel in the middle of it 
but because she ran quite a tight ship, um, certainly some of the nearby residents seem to have had quite a lot of affection for her, but we'll come to that. Uh, so she had 15 resident uh, sex workers, and then she had about another 25 that she could call up from Glasgow at a moment's notice. Um, by all accounts, she was an excellent businesswoman and a very good madam. Her girls were well looked after. They had regular health checks uh, and she had a lot of links with the police. She basically worked as an informer. Uh, this is allegedly, but seems to be the case that she worked as an informer uh, in return for them only raiding her premises a couple of times a year. What sort of things, sorry to keep interrupting here, no. what sort of things would she have informed? So it was on? predominantly stolen goods. So that's what she right. was reporting. Whatever she picked up um, would then be reported to the police and they had this reciprocal arrangement. Uh, she did go to court 47 times uh, on counts of immoral earnings, but she would walk in, she would put the fine on the table and she would show up in her pearls and her fur and her twin set, which became her characteristic outfit. She would put the fine down and she would leave. And then she would talk to the press uh, in Deacon Brodie's pub. Uh, which is just near Gladstone's land, uh, because uh, she basically said that there was no such thing as bad publicity, uh, and she made sure that the press would always print her address correctly. Uh, and then she would basically lie low for a couple of days and carry on as normal. Um, she did. She was briefly imprisoned uh, in 1972, uh, but apparently during that period, for about four months. Um, the councillors received so many complaints about how badly run it was that they were really quite delighted to see her come back. Um, and, and How uh, badly run the, the prison the was. The, the brothel was the brothel. in her absence <laughs> while she was in prison. Um, that they were really quite delighted for her to come back and, and start running it properly again. Um, she actually didn't like the term brothel. Uh, she preferred, these are her two uh, pseudonyms, a house of leisure and pleasure. Uh, and my favourite, which is a, y a YMCA with extras. Uh, she was very outwardly respectable. I've mentioned her twin set and her furs and her pearls. Um, but she also was a staunch Tory supporter. Um, she used to turn up at their garden parties, which caused uproar. Uh, and she attended the Kirk every Sunday as well. Um, so she was seen as this sort of respectable face of what she did. But she was also um, just, she told it how it was and she she clearly had a cracking sense of humour. Um, she is, in an interview, she reportedly said that her busiest time of year was the Edinburgh Festival, uh, followed in a close second by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Um, in 90, mm. um, and similarly, in 1970, the USS John F. Kennedy docked in Leith. Uh, they did £4,000 in one night. And the queues were so far around the block that the captain actually had to declare the house off limits to the sailors. Uh, so there's just glorious stories attached to this brothel. Uh, and with all of this going on, she actually did pretty well for herself. She died in 1977 and the business wound up shortly after that. But when she died, she left uh, houses in Edinburgh. She also owned property in Blackpool. Um, and But there's an amazing quote in the uh, Scotsman from somebody that lived nearby who basically says that um, she has a huge amount of um, affection for, for Dora Noyce, um, that she always ran it well and really she was just providing a service to society. 
so there seems to be there was quite a lot of feeling when she did die um, and there's an absolutely incredible photo from 1976 of her leaving court um in her full garb and you know the, the furs the pearls um and obviously that's just the year before she died she's clearly an old woman but she looks so determined and uh, Dora Noyce is clearly someone who's going to feature in your eventual uh Gladstone's Land tour. She may do. She's a little bit late for what we've been looking at, but that's how I stumbled across her in the first place. Um, And I just, I think from the background that she came from to go up to having all of this property to, she clearly was incredibly organised, incredibly logistically minded, um, very fair. And I, I just think she's such an interesting character, regardless of, you know, the illegality around it. She is, is, just just a wonderful sort of on-the-line character. Well, there you go. Uh, another uh, sensational addition to our, uh, <laughs> our catalogue uh, of the great women of Scotland, Dora Noyce. Uh, so thanks for that, Kate. Uh, so we are on to our last bit of the podcast today, and that is the What Are You Reading This Week? Um, do you want to go first, Thomas? Yes, I'm very happy to do that. What, what are you reading this week? Well, um, in addition to a couple of novels that I've read in the past uh, couple of weeks since we last recorded, um, I, uh, as well as as well as that, um, I have also uh, been, as I might have mentioned already on the show, producing another podcast, uh, which is my. A history of Christianity podcast Saintly Progress uh, and one of the books that I've been referring to for that uh, uh, quite a lot is uh, Dermot McCulloch's book A History of Christianity. Uh, this, my, at least my copy of this at least um, is about three inches thick. Uh, it's, it's an enormous tome uh, it's, uh, but it's, it's not actually um, uh, it's not a reference book. It is a beginning to end prose work, um, but it's not something that I could conceivably think that you would read from beginning to end um, because it's just so big. Uh, what I've been using it for and what I would really recommend to anybody uh, for whom this sort of thing would be useful is that um, it talks in some depth, but a great breadth uh, about the whole history of the Christian faith and the Christian church. And so if there's any thing or person or movement or event that you need to look up and read a bit of the context about uh, and find out some interesting opinions on, um, this is a great book for that. So, uh, and, I, and really, uh, it's been so useful for me for that purpose. Um, and I can't recommend it highly enough for people who, who are interested in, in Christian or church history. So there you go. That's my entry this week. Dermot McCull- McCulloch's uh, Doorstopper, uh, A History of Christianity. Uh, and Kate, what are you reading this week? So I've also gone a little bit rogue with my choice of book this week. It's been one of those weeks. The book that I've picked, or the book that I'm reading this week, uh, I, I thought I would veer away from uh, all the, the history of sex things that I've been reading. Uh, and this is uh, a little bit different. It's got a bit of history in it. It's uh, called Explore Everything, Place Hacking the City. And it's by Bradley L. Garrett. And it is about urban exploration. And for those of you that 
don't know what that is. Um, it's sometimes shortened to urbex if you're feeling a bit cool, maybe. Uh, and it is essentially um, going into abandoned buildings. This They take it a little bit further in this and actually go into things like building sites. But predominantly what it is, is going into empty, derelict, abandoned, unused buildings. And you really go for the experience. You take photos, you explore, um, but there is a code really that you you don't take anything you don't disturb anything you you just go and go and see um and in case we've got any american listeners trespass laws are very different here um it's not actually illegal in the uk so providing you don't break in in any well it's a civil matter rather than a police matter so providing you don't actually break into a building, you don't force a lock, you don't pick a lock, you don't, uh, if you climb through an open window, there's really absolutely nothing they can do except ask you to leave. Uh, so I say this as someone that's a, a low level fan of this. I've been in a lot of mm. weird abandoned buildings. Uh, so that's why I have this book. Someone bought it for me. Uh, but this looks at urban exploration from a academic perspective to some extent and um sort of a social perspective so it looks at why people do it what the appeal of those historical abandoned derelict spaces are um but then also there's a narrative that runs through it um the the guy who wrote it's a journalist and it's him getting involved in these crews that are running in london where they get more bolder and bolder about what they're doing and they actually start breaking into things uh so he looks at at why they do that and what they're trying to get out of it and um, they do ridiculous things like they actually climb across the entire top of the fourth bridge um which just makes me feel a bit sick thinking about it but it is seeing historical structures from a completely different perspective and again he talks about that so it is quite academic-y but it is a really interesting dive into what is so enticing about doing this not just the dereliction but also the the getting up on these structures and seeing them from somewhere different hmm. hey, that sounds fascinating um are you allowed to tell us any of the buildings in Edinburgh that you have explored? So I've not been into any in Edinburgh because I don't have anyone to do it with here. And it's not really something you want to do on your own. Um, so, but so all around St Andrews, there's loads. Um, do you remember Hamilton Hall? Uh, it's just on the old course. Um, they It used to be a student hall um, and then they were going to put luxury flats in it. It's right by the 18th hole. Uh, and then they went bust the company who was putting the luxury flats in and it just stood empty for about three years. That was probably the most amazing place. I've. It was incredible. Um, and that was the place that got me hooked. So it's the first one I really remember. Um, there's an abandoned waterworks around St Andrews, uh, the Nairn's Lino Factory, um, which is Kukodi. Um Yes, of course. Kakodi, uh, famous for the production of linoleum. Yes. Uh, there's a, a BBC documentary on it uh, entitled The Town That Floored the World. I did not know that. Uh, but yes, the, the Nairn's Lino factory is amazing. There was about eight storeys um, and uh, the top floor, which is the, the roof is starting to go, but is basically you can still see where it was a lino show, showroom. Um, wow. so it's still got all the dividing walls you can see the floors and the, it's all it's in little segments and then the back section of that is clearly was the staff canteen um, and it's still got you know like cut out uh, uh, pinups stuck on the wall and like the old benches really interesting wow. um, so um, 
another fascinating yeah no and and i think this has been really interesting this book because it's articulated some of the reasons that i love it and i of course love all the history associated with it but i love that real sense of sort of nature reclaiming places and decline and the stories that that tells you like why they were abandoned in the first place and what's the book called uh, it is called explore everything place hacking the city right well that's uh, uh two again two books uh, reasonably similar in content of course uh, bradley <laughs> Bradley L. Garrett's Explore Everything and Dermot McCulloch's A History of Christianity. So there you go. Those are our book recommendations this week. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's all we've got time for today on the Gladstone's Land podcast. Um, We are continuing to... um, uh, We're continuing to, to produce the podcast over the next couple of weeks and we'll probably continue to do so uh until um uh until the the lockdown it eases in any serious sense uh so if there are subjects that you would like us to discuss then do get in touch you can tweet gladstones land uh you can find it on twitter and you can also email me thomas henry Ware at hotmail.com uh do get in touch we'd love to hear any thoughts you have about the podcast and if it's as anna said if there's anything you'd like us to cover uh then we will endeavor to do so um absolutely what else uh, uh oh yes uh please if you like this and you haven't done so already then please do uh, leave us a review on itunes or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, it really does help uh, other people to find the show. And uh, uh, that uh, can only be a good thing if you like it. So there you are. <laughs> I hope you like it. Yes. Well, I hope you like it too. And I suppose it's it's all part of um, us doing our bit to advertise the work of the National Trust in our own way. So if you want to continue to... Uh, help the podcast and, and support that project then please do uh, rate and review it and uh, and tell your friends about it as well that's all very helpful so uh well i'm thomas and i'm kate and uh, and we'll see you next time <laughs> we'll see you soon You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Kate Stevenson, and my co-host, Thomas Ware. It was produced by us with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was James Ritzmer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones land. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. You'll love us all, make merry cheer, through gladness of this lusty mare, through gladness of this lusty mare.